Good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the book of Hosea in the Old Testament as we begin our brand new series in the summer titled Theology on Fire. This is subtitled today, Exalting in the Knowledge of God. So Hosea chapter 4. And by the way, uh, we welcome all of those, our young people who are normally in Sailorville Kids right now, but you're here during the services in the summer. We're glad you're here. Let's give them a round of applause. They're with us today. Good to have you here, young people. Now, pay attention. I'm just kidding. (laughs) After uh, becoming a Christian, my wife and I, my first wife and I, now in heaven, we, we, um, we befriended a couple. They, we became really close friends with this one particular couple. They went to a different church. It was a, it was a Bible-believing church, much like our own that we were going to. But um, our friend told us about how uh, on Sunday night, she had an experience which was kind of embarrassing to her. Now, this is back in the early 80s. And if, you're, if anybody here has any experience about being back in the 80s, you know that churches would often show um, movies. They didn't even call them movies. They, they called them films. And uh, they were Christian films, and, uh, but it was a big deal to go to a Sunday night and watch a Christian film. So they had just watched this Christian film. And our friend, she really liked the film, and she was kind of giddy about it. it was, afterwards, she's walking out of the church with this elderly woman. Her name was Florence. She was a godly, godly lady, serious mind about the things of God. And she was walking out with her friend. She goes, wasn't that a great film we just saw? To which Florence replied to our friend, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. How would you like to have that for a reply? So, in other words, Florence had come to hear the word of God preached, and she got a cheap substitute in a movie. That's basically what she was saying. And her reaction was to quote the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And so, with that in mind, let's look at that quote that she gave my friend in context, Hosea chapter 4, where it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. He's basically putting them on trial. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no, what's the word? No knowledge of God in the land. The result, there is swearing, lying, there's murder, there's stealing, and committing adultery. They break bounds that that has moral uh, uh, implications, I'll come back to that, and blood follows bloodshed. Skip down to verse 6, my people are destroyed for what? Lack of knowledge. And then he pinpoints the priest because it was coming from the top down because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I'll forget about your kids. How would you like that as a curse? The year was somewhere between 725 and 750 B.C. for Israel, and they were in a bad place. The Assyrians to the north were uh, assimilating the northern tribes because of their unfaithfulness. In fact, they were so unfaithful. In Hosea, God likens the children of Israel to adulterers. In fact, he, in fact they, and that's where if you're unfaithful to God, he likens you to being an adulterer. 
Uh, in fact, so much so to strikingly point this out, he tells Hosea at the very beginning, go and marry a woman who's an adulteress. He marries a woman who repeatedly commits adultery on him and has kids from other men. It's just bizarre and striking, but it's God's way of illustrating what they had done in their unfaithfulness uh, to him. But then God turns the tables around, and in chapter 3, he tells Hosea, now go back to that woman and love her again. It's the most striking illustration in all of the Bible, humanly speaking, of God's persistent, ongoing, unconditional love for us in spite of our sin. And aren't you glad? Amen? But what was it about Israel that provoked such unfaithfulness? What was the, what caused them to be in a place where they're called unfaithful? The answer is really simple, and it's mentioned repeatedly in the passage. Rejecting the knowledge of God. That's what they had done. They'd rejected the knowledge of God. So here's a, here's a teenager. He's taking his dad's car on a run, and uh, he gets arrested. Uh, he's arrested after blowing three red lights on a busy Friday afternoon, two stop signs, and driven the wrong way on a highway, finally ends up in the parking lot, parks in a handicapped parking spot, and walks into a Walmart where he's arrested. And they, they say you're under arrest for you're being multi-ticketed. And his first response to the police, what did I do wrong? I didn't kill anybody. But he nearly did, right? The point is, he had never been taught to drive. And therefore, put many people's lives in jeopardy because of his lack of knowledge. It's fascinating. I draw your attention to verse 2 again. What the lack of knowledge in Israel resulted in, and, and, the, and the results are not much different than what we see today in our land. Look at it again. Swearing, lying, Murder, stealing, committing adultery, and then I underline this, they break all bounds. That has, that's an interest, it's variously translated in, in our English Bibles, but the idea is they were breaking moral boundaries that naturally nobody would do. It's, we, we see this prevalent in our own society today. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is what the prophet, or this is what rather Solomon, how he put it, where there is no prophetic vision, that's where preaching knowledge of truth is being dispensed. When that isn't happening, the people are what? Do you see that in this generation? They're unrestrained. So knowledge, as we have often been told, has power, and it does, both negatively and positively. Without it, the power of darkness reigns, and people and nations and churches collapse into moral, ethical, and spiritual darkness. The gay pride celebrations that we see all over the land today have been around for over 50 years in our country, but just in different cities. Today, the entire country is celebrating. How did this happen? A lack of knowledge. Our country, our world, desperately needs revival. But God is the one who makes, we can't bring revival on ourselves. So until then, the church's responsibility, the church of God's responsibility is to strengthen itself in the knowledge of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we are changed. That's how the world is changed. 
And just a couple of words about knowledge from the writer's, writer of Proverbs. The heart of him who has understanding, what? Seeks knowledge, right? Here's another one. The mind of the prudent is ever getting knowledge. Do you seek knowledge? Are you getting knowledge? That's why the very first thing I tell new Christians that I work with, it's very profound, but I tell them to read your Bible. Why? Because that's where you get knowledge. You need that knowledge. And when you do so, and by the way, a couple of caveats, all truth That is, all true knowledge should stem from a fear of God. Because some of us are just geared to get more knowledge. But true knowledge should stem from a true reverential awe-like fear of God. That's what the writer of Proverbs again says. Solomon starts out in chapter 1, verse 7 by saying, The fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning of knowledge. That's why whenever I read my Bible, I open up the Word of God. This isn't like any other book. It's not a magic book, but it is a majestic book. It is a miraculous book. It is a book like nothing else, and I know that this book can change my life. So whenever I open my Bible, I pray the prayer of David for the powers of observation, which only come from God. Illumination, sometimes we call it. He said in Psalm 119, verse 18, open thou my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law, right? So, Knowledge, true knowledge, comes from a fear of the Lord. And the other caveat is knowledge is often connected in Scripture, particularly with Proverbs and Psalms, to wisdom. Wisdom is basically knowledge applied. That's what it is. Wisdom, you're wise when you take knowledge and you apply it, okay? So knowledge and wisdom are often connected because knowledge alone puffs up, makes us pride, prideful. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul said when he said knowledge puffs up but love what? It builds up, right? So a lot of us and these people and others that we'll see here before we're done this morning are like Watson. You Remember the, Watson, the assistant to Sherlock Holmes? Sherlock Holmes famously said to him, Watson, you see, but you don't observe. Jesus said something very similar to his enemies. In John chapter 5, he said to them, you search the scriptures. He's not commanding them to search the scriptures. He's acknowledging that they do. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And there is eternal life embedded in in this book. And they are they which testify of me. You see what he's saying? You search the scriptures, but you're not getting it. You're not seeing me. And consequently, they were rebuked because their knowledge wasn't producing godliness. Paul wrote to the The Romans, referring to the Jews, he said in Romans 10, he said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Implication, they weren't. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? Knowledge, very good. For they being ignorant, there's where knowledge comes from, ignorant of God's righteousness and pursuing after their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's what the Bible says. So we're talking about theology on fire, and more technically, in theological terms, it's called systematic theology. Now, when you hear that, some of you go, oh my goodness, this sounds so boring. It's not meant to be boring. Listen, if you are a growing Christian, if you're a brand new Christian, if you're an old Christian, anything in between Christian, 
If you're a growing Christian, you will want to know what the Bible teaches on given subjects. Amen? What does the Bible teach about itself, about its authority, about its inspiration, about its, about its unity, about its sufficiency? What does the Bible teach us about God? We'll be into that next week. Who is God? How do we know about God? What is God like? Herein lies part of the problem. I mean, I mean somebody once said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. That's our problem today. We, we, God created us in his image, and then we try to create him in our own image, and that's, that's just a pile of goo. And we'll talk about that more later, but... What does he say? What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? About salvation, about Satan, about sin, about our future, about the church, and even current issues like the LGBTQ issue and the gender dysphoria that we have, anxiety, mental disorder. And those aren't considered major topics in the Bible, but they are all dealt with theologically speaking, systematically thinking. Speaking rather. God's truth. Listen to this. God's truth in these and other given areas informs our minds, increases our godliness, alerts our spirit. Like, whoa. Have you ever had that where, you're, where something happens, somebody says something, somebody preaches something, somebody presents something, and your spirit goes, whoa, that's not true, Right? That's, that's God, the Holy Spirit, activating the truth of God on a particular subject and causing you to go, whoa. I mean, I walked in here today. I did not know we had the operation sign here, okay? But wouldn't it be cool if every time a preacher on this platform said something that isn't true, boom, the light would just go off? How embarrassing would that be? But that's what good theology on fire does in your heart. It will cause you to go, whoa, that's not true. Or yes, that's true. And in fact, and on and on. It, good theology will protect your life and it will help us to spread the gospel. It is theology on fire. Now I have, this is my personal definition of, of systematic theology. That, in other words, it's not the final answer. I've read lots of different definitions this, I like things a little shorter, and this helps me. I'm giving it to you for what it's worth. Systematic theology compartmentalizes the Bible's major subjects. Then, then pulls the Bible's teaching on a given subject from throughout the Bible. And we'll put that up there again. But I, again, systematic theology compartmentalizes the Bible's major subjects, then pulls the Bible's teaching from various places in the scripture, on a given subject from throughout the Bible. And notice I keep referencing the Bible because it's the Bible where we want to find our truth. Not from philosophy, though we can find a lot of truth there and we can find in books of the making of many books, there is no end, right? We are talking about the unalloyed word of God. Many of you are given to alloyed. An alloy is something that's mixed, a mixed metal. The Bible is not mixed, it's unalloyed, Amen. And so when you're reading the Bible, you're reading pure, unadulterated, unalloyed truth. And we need that. Just the other day, I was at lunch with a friend, a man that I had the joy of leading to Christ a few years ago. And 
We're having lunch, and the waiter was very interested in spiritual things, starts talking to us. We start interacting with him. And uh, in the process, he says, so, hey, what's, this is exactly how he put it. What does your church believe about the Holy Spirit and the acts of the Holy Spirit after salvation? And I, 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 I happened to figure that this guy might be in a church that might be charismatic. I wasn't sure he didn't. I think he probably was. But he asked me what my church believed. Do you think I gave him what our church believes? Our church has a belief. We have a doctrinal statement. But no, I didn't give him what our church believed. I said, in fact, I said to him, I'll tell you what the Bible teaches on the subject. Because it's, if they, it, to the law and to the testimony, Isaiah said, if they do not speak according to this word, there's no light in them. Have you ever read that? So theology on fire is always committed to the very word of God. It declares that the Bible's truth on any given matter and then calls God's people to a response. Good preaching and teaching on theology is not just a data dump. It's not just a bunch of information to fill your receptacles that you call your brains. Theology is intended to transform both, of our, both our minds and our lives. That's what theology on fire should do. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was simply the great Bible expositor of yesteryear, who was also simply called the doctor, he wrote this. What is preaching, he asked. It's logic on fire. Preaching is theology coming through a man who's on fire. A true understanding and experience of the truth must lead to this. I say again that a man who can speak about these things dispassionately has no right whatsoever to be in a pulpit and should never be allowed to enter one, unquote. That reminded me of the, the Christian, he wasn't a Christian, he was an antagonist to Christianity Back in the 1700s, a famous deist by the name of David Hume, he was seen in the early hours of the morning walking to hear the great George Whitfield preach. Somebody saw Hume and walked up and said, you know, Dr. Hume, what are you, what are you, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to hear George Whitfield. And they said, you don't even believe what George Whitfield preaches. And Hume said, I know, but he does. Just think about that for a moment. Preaching theology that's on fire when an individual preaches the truth and teaches the truth of God with a life to back it up so on fire that it even draws the antagonist to come and listen. That's powerful stuff. That is theology on fire. Now, on the other hand, just because somebody is passionate doesn't make them truthful. It might make them a demagogue. Our beliefs... Theological beliefs pulled from various passages of Scripture. Our beliefs must be verifiable. They must be verifiable. The cults, either like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and really any so-called church that believes that salvation is anything other than by grace through faith in Jesus, they either add to the Scriptures or they utterly distort the Scriptures like our Vacation Bible School theme. They take twists and turns to get where they want to go. This is why Peter wrote what he did. Here, so Peter, you know, Peter's a fisherman. He wasn't, he wasn't like the Apostle Paul. So he pretty much acknowledges, he's writing his people. He says, you know, a lot of what Paul says is kind of hard to understand. Can I get an amen? 
But then he says something else. I want you to see it. He said this. He says, there are some things in them, that is in the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist. You see that word? That's the only time that word is ever used in the Greek New Testament. It literally means to torture. That's what it means. They torture, the unstable torture, that is the scripture, to their own destruction, and watch this, as they do the other scriptures. You see what this is saying? Just hold it up there for a moment. What this is saying is, when you distort the Bible in one place, you are, because the Bible is consistent, because the Bible never contradicts itself, you are forced to torture it every time you come across that subject. Case in point, the Jehovah's Witnesses, as I mentioned earlier. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. The Bible couldn't make it clearer in the New Testament. Jesus is God. They don't believe that. They twist things around. They say, oh, he's the son of God. That's true. And so they make him something less than God. And, but what happens is they are then forced every time the New Testament in various places uh, testify that Jesus is God, they are forced to twist the Bible. Like in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, this is my, one of my favorite passages on the deity of Jesus, where you have, the fa- you have Father God talking to the Son of God. And this is what the Father says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Therefore, God, your God is anointed. You have God calling God, God. You have God the Father talking to God the Son and calling him God. There's no other way around it. It's a powerful passage on the deity of Jesus. You know what the, the, the New World Translation, that's the Jehovah Witnesses perverted Bible says? When they get to it, it says, your throne is a God. It doesn't even make sense. But that's what they have to do. So good theology recognizes that the Bible never contradicts itself. The reformers had a term for this. It was a Latin term. It was called the analogia scriptura. It literally means the Bible always comes together. It's unified. It'll never contradict itself. And we can rejoice in that, amen? The beautiful thing about the Bible is its unity and its consistency on every major topic. And this is the reason why the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 are so commended when, when, when we're told the Bereans were more noble-minded than those who were in Thessalonica. Why? Because they, they, they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And we have to do the same. Systematic theology pulls together the truth of God from various parts in the Bible on any given subject of Scripture. And when it, the result, when rightly taught, is we, we know, so we're informed, we know, we grow, we show, and we go. I want you to take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 24 for the balance of our time. Go over to Luke 24. As you make your way there, it's one of my favorite passages on the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I'd preach it every Easter, except it just wouldn't be right to do that. I love it that much. The story is, it's the only, Luke is the one who records it. It's the day of the resurrection. Jesus has risen, and he encounters two guys who are just downcast. 
uh, they're, they're, they're followers of Jesus, and Jesus meets up with them incognito. Do you remember that? Doesn't show himself to them. Then starts talking to them. And, you know, what do you, what, why are your faces so down? What's the deal, you know? He's playing coy with them, you know, and they say, well, you haven't heard? Well, what am I supposed to hear, Jesus said. Well, if Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, he was a man of mighty and word and deed and yada, 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 and we hoped he was going to be the one, yada, yada, and he's dead. And so they're just, it's, he, in their mind, he's gone. He's dead. They see no hope left. And that's where we pick it up in verse 25. Look at verse 25. We put it up there for you. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Clearly, Jesus is not impressed by their lack of belief. But notice he's disappointed by the fact that they had knowledge, but their knowledge, nothing happened. It didn't connect. They weren't making, they weren't connecting the dots. What were they not getting? Let's keep reading, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Implication, you should have seen that as you were studying this. You should have seen it. They didn't. They weren't getting it. And beginning, verse 27, at, with Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, essentially the rest of the Bible, Old Testament that is, he interpreted, that, the word interpret is where we get our, our word hermeneutic from this word. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. Here we have systematic theology on display. You have the word of God teaching the word of God. That's pretty dang cool, amen? Really cool. So you have the word of God teaching the word of God. And he summarizes the Old Testament. I, I don't, we're not to think he went through every single verse of the Old Testament. But he, he did an overarching thing. And in so doing, he revealed himself to these two guys. And some of you, have, many of you probably read this story. Just try to picture their eyes. Try to picture what's going on in their minds. Try to picture what's happening in their hearts. As Jesus said, do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? Do you remember when they clothed themselves with the foliage of the garden and how God had to come along and kill an animal and clothe them with that skin? They would have had to remove what they had on, put on the garments of God. Suddenly, oh my goodness, they'd never thought of that before. He would probably have taken them to Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham attempted to kill Isaac. Remember that? Isaac becomes a picture of Jesus willingly laying down. Abraham's wielding his knife over him. The angel stops him. There's a ram in the bush. Another picture of substitution. The, the ram dies in his place. He would probably have taken him to Exodus chapter 12 after the 10 plagues. The 10th plague is the angel of death going over every home in Egypt. And if that home didn't have blood on the doorpost and the lentil, Death would occur. But if it did, God would what? The angel would what? Pass over. And Jesus would have said to these guys, I'm the true Passover. I'm the Passover lamb. Don't you get it? He might have even taken that story of the bronze serpent. Remember that? When they were all getting bit by snakes. And I know, I, what are we going to do? We're all dying. I'll tell you what, Moses. Put a pole up. Put a bronze snake on it. Everybody who stares at it will live. Can you think of anything more ridiculous in your entire life? I stare at a snake and I'm going to live. But in so doing, God was illustrating the ridiculousness of the cross to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Amen? 
That's the knowledge I need. He would have taught those individuals about that. He might have even finished up by reminding them that his own cousin said to him when he showed up on the scene, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just imagine what was happening. Just the other day, I was studying uh, for this message in a coffee shop. I, I know that's surprising. But there was a young lady that approached me, and uh, she introduced herself. And I didn't know her, but she said she'd been coming for a while, and we talked for a little bit. She was having Bible studies. And I asked her what Bible studies she was doing. The one that's very common around here are salvation studies. I said, really, that's exciting. She told me who she was having the study with. And I said, fantastic. She's wonderful. It'll be great. And what study are you in, I asked. She goes, we're in the third one tonight. Well, if you guys know anything about that third study, it's a study. It's not the Word of God, but using the Word of God. I mean, countless individuals have come to know Jesus having done that third study. But I knew that when I teach that third study, I supplement it. Uh, I didn't write the study, so I, like any good Bible teacher, you just supplement it. And I, I said, can I share with you? I asked her, I said, can I share with you what I like to share during that time? And I took this young lady through a, just an overview of what I just shared with you, of the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. You should have seen her eyes. It's just like, oh my goodness. I could tell just looking at her, this girl's going to get saved. I got a text later that night. She got saved, amen? And she's in this room this morning. Praise the Lord, amen? So what did these guys do? Look, let's pick up the, the narrative, verse 28. So they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted, Jesus that is, acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. First toward evening, the day's far spent, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Oh, man, that would have been awesome. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? Well, he opened to us the scriptures, talked to us on the road. I mean, just imagine Put yourself in their place. And what do you suppose they did now that their eyes were opened and they could see and they understood the death and resurrected Jesus? What did they do as a result? Well, they, they started conferences on how your hearts ought to be burning and, and uh, your eyes can be opened. No. No. <laughs> the lights had definitely come on. But look what they did. Look at the next verse. Just keep going. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon, and they told him what had happened on the road, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is theology on fire. When you know, and you grow, and you show, and you go, because you can't keep it to yourself. You can't keep it to yourself. The prophet Jeremiah said this to his people. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let the one who boasts boast in this 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Do you know him? I mean, really, do you know him? Has the gospel of Jesus, who died and rose again for you, invaded your life and changed you from the inside out? Jesus said on the night in which he, was, he would die, he said, this is eternal life, that they may know, know, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And when you really know, then your theology comes on fire, and that just changes everything around you and people around you. Just the other day, my wife and I read Psalm 148 together. And if you read Psalm 148, it just says, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, everyone and everything, right down to the creatures that crawl. And so we read it like we thought maybe the psalmist wanted us to read it. Pretty crazy. And then we looked at each other and we said, we have to praise him. And that's what we did. We praised him with this song, this old hymn. I'd like you to join with us with great praise as well. Let's all stand.